So if you were to take the, the book of Romans and divide it into sections, um, the first section would be the first 11 chapters, which essentially tells us all that God has done for us. There's not one uh, word in the whole first 11 chapters that tell us anything that we're supposed to do. Um, it is all telling us what God has done for us. And then the second section of the book of Romans would be from chapter 12 to the end, and that is uh, our response to what God has already done for us. And that's where we find ourselves as we're in chapter 12, is in this segment of, of it where we're responding now um, to what God has done. And uh, the context of chapter 12 in its purest form is the will of God. You know, how do we find ourselves in the will of God uh, for our lives? And, and the amazing thing about the will of God is that it is the safe place. There is no other place that any of us want to be. I think if we even took a poll of the room, is how many people in here want to be outside the will of God? <laughs> Anybody in here just not want, want to be in God's will for their life? I mean, you know, now there's probably many people in the world that would say I could care less, I think sometimes in our um, in our circumstances and in our pain, um, sometimes we might say, if this is the will of God for my life, then maybe I want to be out of the will of God for my life. But I think we, underneath all of that, we all know that even if we're suffering in our current situation, we would rather have the confidence that we're in the will of God, even if that means suffering, than to be out of the will of God. Because when you're out of the will of God, even if you're comfortable, you're not safe. <laughs> you're in a very uh, um, vulnerable position that, that you're in. Uh, one of the occupational hazards of being a pastor is the cruelty of Christian people. <laughs> and, um, and, and by that, or, or how that manifests itself, is that oftentimes what happens is that people will come to us pastors, and they will, you know, come and, the, you know, they come and they say that they're seeking counsel, um, but when they come seeking counsel, what they're essentially saying is, I'm, I'm really contemplating, not, this is not always, this is sometimes, they're saying, I'm really contemplating stepping outside of the will of God, and I'm looking for your approval. <laughs> you know, and so and so they'll come and they'll lay out their their circumstances and they'll they'll you know describe the difficulty of them or uh, the fact that they're suffering and or, or the, what they're feeling or what they're going through and somehow underneath it God has been unfair or you know sometimes even in a in a in a humility they'll you know they'll confess that they're it's their fault in some way but nevertheless they found themselves in a. Uh, in a circumstance where they have deemed that to step outside of the revealed will of God would be better for them than if they were to abide in the circumstance, even though they might be in the will of God, in the whole thing. And so uh, they'll come and they'll say what God has allowed is unfair or it hurts or this whole thing. And, and, and what they're doing is they're backing us pastors into a corner. Because what they're doing is they're essentially saying to us, they're saying, well, I'm going to give you two choices in this counseling session, pastor. Uh, number one is that you can be uh, uh, apathetic <laughs> to my circumstances and cruel and tell me I have to endure it 
and I'm going to make you, you know, show no sympathy and things. Or your second option, Pastor, is to tell me that it's okay for me to step outside of the will of God because I don't like the circumstances uh, that I'm in. And then I can, uh, I can leave this office and I can put the blame on you for things. And I can say either you are careless, heartless, and you have no sympathy for my pain, or you've given me permission to step outside of your will. The pastor said it's okay if I do this uh, kind of a thing. And so that's a very cruel thing that people do uh, to pastors <laughs> on a not too infrequent basis. Uh, they, they basically want me to sign off on their disobedience uh, <laughs> uh, on things so that they have an excuse for it. So they're claiming that I'm insensitive or I've given them permission. So um, you know, in light of this whole concept of the will of God, I want to bring something back to our attention uh, again this morning as a precursor before we hop back into our place in Romans 12, which is basically talking about the will of God for our lives. In Luke 14, there was an incident in Jesus' ministry where he had gained an incredible amount of popularity. Um, people were following him in, in multitude number. I mean, we're talking in the thousands. Uh, the, you couldn't, he couldn't go somewhere. I mean, he went to one side of the lake the, in a boat. The people would run around the other side, and they'd meet him before he could even arrive there. And it was just this massive crowd of people. And there was one particular instance when Jesus' fame was kind of near its pinnacle, and there was multitudes of people that were following him that it says, it says in Luke 14, verse 25, it says that there went a great multitude with him and that he turned in the middle of this whole thing and he saw this great multitude. He sees all these people following them and, and he kind of does something that most uh, religious leaders wouldn't do is that he says something that's purposefully going to thin out the crowd. You know, usually you try to milk it, right? Well, let's, let's, let's see how big we can make this thing. But Jesus sees the multitude and he realizes that something's not right. And so he says this to them in verse 26. It begins this uh, little speech. He says, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, a disciple is one who follows. So he's speaking to people that are essentially saying to him, we want to follow. And what Jesus is saying is, if you want to follow, then the requirements and the terms of that are hatred towards father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and even your own life. Then he takes it one step further in verse 27. And he says, and whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, that is, and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. So not only are you to hate your own life, but you are going to bear and carry the very instrument that's going to kill you. <laughs> and, and if you're not willing to do that, and if you don't understand that that's the terms, that's what you're agreeing to when you say that you're going to come and follow me, then it ain't going to work. So he makes an observation. He sees the multitudes of people. Then he makes a declaration concerning the cost of what it means to follow him. Now he gives two illustrations to, to, to make it clear. He says in verse 28, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower, building project, sitteth not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest, haply, along the way, after he has laid the foundation, that is, he's gotten things started, the excitement phase, the planning phase, 
the the architecture you know has been drawn up and all all that's done the cornerstone's been set the foundation's been laid you're 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 into this thing now and the sweat is beginning to drop the the bills are starting to pile up the schedule is starting to get a little more stressful and tight and tedious than you had initially planned this is the part where things aren't going according to plan if any of you have ever done something and you realize that laying the foundation ends up taking 90% of the time <laughs> when it's supposed to take 10, you know, you realize this is the part where things get difficult. And he says they lay the foundation, but then is not able to finish it. All behold it, they begin to mock him, saying this man began to build, but was not able to finish. Now, Jesus is looking at a bunch of people that haven't even laid the foundation yet, that are saying, yeah, we're going to build, we're going to finish. And he's saying, listen, it might not be as easy as you think. Second illustration, verse 31. He says, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000. Now clearly illustrating, saying, listen, this whole thing of following me, being my disciple, living this life, is going to cost you more than what your natural resources are able to expend. It's going to be more than what you think. That's what Jesus is clearly saying to these people. And have you sat down and counted the cost and realized that this is going to extend you further than what you initially expect? And are you willing, for the sake of what you're doing, to pay that price? That's the question that Jesus is asking them. Or else, verse 32, while the other, the adversary, is yet a great way off, he sends an embassage and desires conditions of peace. That is, he compromises, he, he, he aborts the mission before ever engaging the enemy in actual combat and conflict. So likewise, verse 33, and here's the application. So he's given his two illustrations, a building project, a military campaign, and now the application. So likewise, just like these two illustrations, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, what Jesus is saying to them is that you guys are following in the excitement of this day when you see the miracles and the multitudes are with you and momentum is in your favor and the spirit is moving and flowing. But understand that it's not always going to look like this. It's not always going to be like this. And to follow me is expensive. It's extensive. It's expansive. And it can be and ultimately will be exhausting. And to follow Christ will at some point cost us something. And not just something, but it will cost us everything. And what Jesus is calling them to, and subsequently calling us to, is accounting of the cost to sit down and ask ourselves the question, is what we're doing and what we're getting worth what it's going to cost us in order to get there and to obtain the thing that we're pursuing? Now, what's the pursuit? What is the call? It's to be a disciple. Is following Jesus to be his, to live in his kingdom, to serve his purposes, to glorify his kingdom, and to be what he's called us to be, is it worth what it's going to cost? And the cost is going to be everything. And the amazing thing that happens over the course of a Christian's experience 
is to watch them pay the bills. At the beginning, it's very, very easy because out of the abundance of energy, the smallness of responsibility, the, 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 the simplicity of knowledge, not knowing all that's involved, it's very easy at the beginning. But what happens as you go is you watch the crowd get thinner and thinner and thinner. Because as people have to write the next check, you mean this is going to cost me what? You mean this might cost me my health? You mean I have to continue and pursue even though there's conflict? You mean, you mean it's going to actually cost me? You know, and, and as the cost increases, you watch more and more people come to the point where they say, well, I'm just simply not willing to pay. If I have to do this, then it's not worth doing this. They make an appointment with me, and they say, listen, Pastor, you've got two choices. <laughs> I'm stepping off the path, and somehow you're taking the blame. <laughs> and that's ultimately what happens in the whole thing. Understand, listen, understand this, is that anything that's worthwhile costs something. And what Jesus is saying to us is the prize of being my disciple, of serving and honoring my purposes and building and glorifying my kingdom. Is it worth what it's going to cost if what it's going to cost is everything, even you yourself carrying and bearing the instrument of your own death, your own dying? And so Jesus gives us this thing, and then he applies it in verse 34 and 35. His final analysis of the whole thing is this. He says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savor, then wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And essentially what he's saying is this, is that if a person comes to a point where they sell out on the Lord because of what it costs them ultimately to follow them, then their worthfulness in his eyes is equivalent of salt that has no savor. That that's the mind of God. Now this is, you say, wow, this is tough, but this is reality. This is the cost of discipleship. Now, as it relates to being in the will of God for our lives, sometimes it's painful. At some point it will be. It costs us something. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 now is saying to us essentially on these things is that Jesus Christ gave his life. He bore his cross. He paid it all in order to obtain you and I. He paid the highest price in order to gain us. And what he's saying now is that our reasonable response to that is that we're to give all that we are and to lay it down for him. An absolute surrender to his will for our lives. How do we find his will for our lives? Well, number one, we looked at at the beginning of our study of chapter 12, is an absolute surrender of our body and our mind. An absolute laying down, Lord, my body is yours. You can do with it what you will. My mind is yours. Renew it. I yield it to you. I willingly take it away from the influence of worldly things and I subject it to the full influence and spectrum of spiritual things that my mind might be rewritten with your word, your will, the things of you. He says that's your reasonable service, step one. He says that at the end of verse two, that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, that you might be in his will. Next, after the absolute surrender of body and mind, is now 
the willful surrendering unto service. A huge key and factor in being in the will of God is to be serving him according to the calling that he's placed upon our lives. I find for me that that's essential. Because sometimes the going gets tough, doesn't it? And and if I have nothing linking me or holding me in the game, then it's easy for me to check out of it. It's interesting, you know, back years ago, um, when things worked a little more properly in, in, in our country, uh, if you wanted to apply for a mortgage, you had to have something to show for it. <laughs> if you wanted to buy a house, you needed some money down, you know, 20% or something like that. And there was a reason for that. The reason why a, 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 a financier wanted to see that, uh, you know, or, or get from you money was to prove that you're going to be good for this. If you put 20% of your hard-earned livelihood into this thing, then you're more likely to pay off that thing that you've been loaned, you know, because it's going to get hard, and the banks know this is going to get hard. And if you got no skin in the game, then you're going to do what people are doing today. Well, I didn't have to pay anything to get into this thing, and now it's getting hard to pay for the thing, so now I'll just leave the keys on the counter and I'll move out. And now the bank is stuck with the house they got to deal with. And the same thing kind of translates into the spiritual realm. If I'm not serving the Lord and my life isn't involved, if my time and my energy is not involved in the things of God, then when things get hard, it's very easy for me to just take a back seat, the salt to lose its savor, and for me to just say, well, I'm just going to put God over here. He can be in this segment of my life. I'll still call myself salt. But when I'm engaged and involved and I'm linked with people, and they're dependent on what I'm providing in the body of Christ, or the kingdom is dependent on what I'm providing for the body of Christ, then it's not so easy for me when things get hard to just say, well, I'm just going to step away from the thing. It keeps me engaged. And so part of remaining in the will of God, even though things are tough, is being actively involved in serving according to the gifts and the calling that God has placed upon my life. And so in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 12, the Apostle Paul lists out seven gifts. And I'm glad that there's only seven gifts. Wouldn't it be complicated if there was 10,000? And I had to figure out where I fit in a spectrum of 10,000 gifts, you know. But he segregates it into seven sections. And he says, listen, everyone in the body of Christ is going to fall into one of these categories and then have strengths in some others as well. And those things are going to make up a calling, an enabling, a gracing of the life in order to be serving and involved in the things of God. And so the first prophecy, then teaching, then exhortation, then ministry or serving, then governing or administrating or ruling, then giving, sharing, then mercy. He lists seven gifts that I did I miss one there? I feel like I did. Maybe I didn't. Got them all. You know, seven gifts that, that, are, that are given there and the whole thing. And what these are called is these are called the motivational gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, leave Romans 12 for a minute. Actually, we're not going to come back to Romans 12. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 12 for the remainder of our, our time this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Paul kind of describes in another letter how all this works out. How do our gifts work out? How, how do they practically reveal themselves or show themselves or use, are useful or used of themselves for our service? And, and so notice what he says in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren. Now if you're like me, if you're using a King James Bible, or even a New King James, you'll notice that that word gifts there is in italics. And what that means is that that, it's okay. And what that means is that uh, that word is not there in the original language. It was inserted by the translators for uh, the flow of language, but it isn't there in the original. So the, the, the verse actually reads, now concerning spirituals, or spiritual matters, or spiritual things, or issues surrounding spiritual things. He says, you have no need, or he says, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be, be ignorant or, or, or without understanding concerning how all of this works. That's important. If we're going to serve, if we're going to be recipients of these things, then we should understand how it works. He says, you know that you were Gentiles carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever uh, been around someone who's extremely given to like horoscopes. Um, you know, mystical things, looking for signs in every little thing that happens, reading tea leaves, and, you, you know, every time something happens, like, this must be a sign from God. You know, that's kind of the idea that, that Paul is, is communicating here in verse 2. He's saying, listen, before you were saved, it was, it was kind of part of you to look for signs, some kind of a spiritual leading in the things that were going around, on around you. And he's saying, but you were looking for it in dumb idols, nonsensical things that aren't actually spiritual in nature. He says, wherefore, because of this, I give you, this is a gift, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. In other words, what Paul is saying, essentially, by going to these two extremes, Jesus accursed, Jesus is Lord, is he saying that outside of the person of Jesus and the salvation of Jesus and the Christian faith, you got no chance of figuring out God's will or God's leading or recognizing spiritual things. <laughs> because you must be born again. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you'll never recognize the Spirit, whether he hits you in the face or not. Now, he says, after laying the foundation of that, here's the, the substance. He says, there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same spirit. Now, when Paul says there are diversities of gifts, he's talking about the list of gifts that he gave in Romans chapter 12. There are diversities of gifts. Now, those gifts, again, prophecy, teaching, exhortation, ministry, giving, ruling, and mercy. Those are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not going to go through again, if you weren't here last week, you know, on, or last time on our, our uh, thing, you can get Romans 12, 3 through 8. We went through all seven of those gifts. Well, the question people have is, how do I figure out what my gift is? How do I know what my gift is? There are diversities of gift, gifts. What's mine? Well, somebody has wisely called the gifts of the Spirit the motivational gifts. Because basically, the way that you figure out what your gift is, 
is by simply asking yourself, what motivates you? How are you motivated? How do you respond in a crisis? Let's say that you were driving down the road, and as you're driving, you watch right in front of you somebody run a red light or pull out into traffic, and a major accident takes place. How do you naturally respond to that circumstance, that situation? There's going to be some people that are going to look at that from a supremely spiritual perspective. And they're going to say, oh, that must be because that person is in, is in, a, is in a rush in their life and they're getting out in front of God. And so they're not following the signs and the leading and, and they've, they've put themselves in danger and they have run into an intersection and they crashed and burned. That is symbolic of this person in my life or whatever. This is a sign from God. That person probably has the gift of prophecy. They're looking at that situation and the way that they're seeing it, their natural interpretation of what's going on, that's probably a strength in their life. Another person is going to look at that same situation and they're going to just immediately analyze it. They're going to analyze the situation just for what it is, break down the facts of it. Well, either that red light's not working, or that person was texting, or, you know, or, you know, they were distracted by something, or they're suicidal, and this person was just going way too fast, they weren't even, and, and all of a sudden, you're like, you know, I better pull over, someone's going to need a police report on this, and I'm a good witness of it, and everything, and, and, and you know, and, and you can explain all the details of how that accident went down, and that you see it clearly for what it is, probably a teacher, someone who can just explain, you know, pull, pull the facts out of it. There's someone else who their, their first thought uh, on things is going to be like, oh my goodness, this is tragic. This is a tragic thing. These people need help. <laughs> I need to help this, the, you know, the, this, the, this whole thing. You know, is, and they go in and they check, is everybody alive, you know, and the whole thing. And they see someone there and they're shaken up and they immediately come and they put an arm around them. You know, they, they begin to encourage and, and it's, it's going to be all right. You're going to be okay. You know, the whole thing, you know. Do you, do you need a Band-Aid? Do you need, you know, whatever? <laughs> that person probably has the gift of encouragement. You know, they're looking out for the people that were involved in this situation. There's going to be someone else that immediately is going gonna, is gonna, gonna to think, okay, we've got to clean this mess up, and we've got to get traffic flowing again. People got places to go, and they're going to come in. They're just going to immediately begin to direct traffic. They're going to set up a couple of cones. They're going to push some of the broken glass out of the way. We're going to wait till the police come and the whole thing. That person has the gift of ministry, the gift of service. There's going to be someone else who's going to immediately begin to delegate. They're going to get on the phone. They're going to call 911. They're going to say, hey, you, come over here. You direct traffic. And then they're going to say to this person, you come over here and do this. You know, and that person has the gift of administration, the gift of governments. There's someone else that's going to say, oh my goodness, this is going to cost a fortune to resolve all this. <laughs> you know, the, the windshield is going to have to be replaced on that car. Do they have proper insurance? And, you know, they're ready to whip out their checkbook. And, you know, we need to, we need to just get things fixed on things. You know, that person has the gift of giving. And then the, there's one more person that's going to just have the gift of mercy. And they're just going to be totally all about the people. Are they okay? What do you need? Can I call someone for you? I'll visit you in the hospital. I'll bake you meals. I need to get you on the prayer chain at my church, you know, and, and, and that person has got the gift of mercy. How do you respond when things happen around you in your life? What's the natural way that you operate in a day-to-day -day basis? That's going to reveal to you what your gifts are. 
Oftentimes, in fact, probably all the time, the gifts that we have spiritually are things that God has placed in us even from birth, even from before we were born again. If I were to show you a car out in the parking lot and you have never seen it ever before in your life, you don't know what it is, you, you, you've no prior knowledge, any history of it, you're just, I'm showing you this thing for the first time, and you just look at it. And I say to you, you know, what's this thing made for? You know, you, you would look at it and the whole thing, and, and you would realize probably after some time, you'd get a clue of what it does, what it's for and the whole thing. Now, that car was created to be that even though it's not doing what it was made to do at the time that you see it. Now, if I give you the key to that car and you put it in and start it up, now it's been energized and it's been equipped and enabled to do the thing that it was made to do all along. And I believe that you and I are made by God the same way. He has given us gifts. He knit us all together, and he's given every single person a gift, a combination of gifts that make up a calling. And we are that from the time that we're first born. But it isn't until we're born again and the Spirit of God comes in us that, in a sense, the key is inserted in the ignition. We're energized, and now we're enabled and equipped to do the thing that we were made to do. And so the diversities of gifts that are given to us all by the same Spirit are in us already. And what we are motivated to do is an indication of what that gift is. Now, for me, from the very first day, Actually, way before I was saved, I've always been a teacher. That's just the way that I've been wired. To explain, to, to, to expound, to untie, to unpack. That's me. It's what I do. And from the earliest days of my Christian life, it was a thrill to me to see something in the Word and then share it with someone else. Even though I assume you know, most people probably already heard the things that I'm saying, but it motivated me. Now, to evangelize? To share with a non-believer, to me, that's always been so unnatural, very difficult. I, I tie up. I can't speak. It doesn't work. I get nervous. It's not what I'm called to do. It's a different, total different thing. So how are you motivated? That's how we respond or discover what it is that God has given to us. He says in verse 5, there's diversities of gifts, but in verse 5, there are differences of administrations. Now, I don't know, again, what translation you're using or what word is employed by your translator, but that word administrations is an interesting word. If you notice that tucked right inside of that word, administrations, you'll see the word ministry. You see that? Mm -hmm. It's where the word ministry essentially comes from. And if you were to just substitute it out, it would read like this. There are differences of ministries but the same Lord. So now not the, the person, the minister would be the gifted one, but now the ministry. And there are tons of different types of ministries, aren't there? There are church ministries. There are humanitarian ministries, radio ministries, student ministries, you know, hospital ministries, hospice ministries, missionary organizational ministries. You know, there are ministries beyond anything that you can even comprehend. And what, what he's saying here is that God is the Lord of all of them. There's differences of administrations, but it's the same Lord. They're all serving Jesus. They have a different purpose. They're doing different things, but their ministries nevertheless. He goes on in verse 6, 
And he says that there are also diversities of operations. Now, what's an operation? An operation is the way something works, the way something operates, right? Like even if you're looking at cars, two cars don't operate the same way. Sometimes you have a rotary engine. Sometimes you have a V-cylinder pattern. Sometimes you have a straight cylinder pattern. They're engines, but they operate in different fashions according to the way that they were designed. So too it is with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You could have two people that have the gift of teaching, but yet they operate completely differently in the way that they teach. I teach the way I teach, the way I am right now. But someone else maybe teaches with physical, visible illustrations. PowerPoint, they draw maybe on a whiteboard or a chalkboard as they're going. They bring in graphics and videos. Sometimes people use humor in a greater proportion or a greater way. You know, people illustrate in different ways, whether with words or whatever. You know, but, but we're teachers, but people teach in different ways. There's different operations of the teaching. Same thing with a gift of prophecy, a gift of giving. Some people give so secretly, so discreetly, so as never to be known. Other people, they don't, they're not looking to be known, but they're just not as discreet about it. Some people give by giving time. Some people give by giving resources. There's different operations in the way these gifts work. And so not everybody's the same. There's diversities of operations, but it's the same God that works all in all. You see the common denominator in this? Same spirit, same Lord, same God. But now, how does it all flesh out? He says in verse 7, but, okay, gifts, ministries, operations, now, verse 7, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Do you see those words there? Mm -hmm. Now, is the gift of teaching given to every man? No. Does every man operate in the same ministry? No. Does every man operate in their gift the same way? No. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man. Whether you're a teacher, a prophet, a giver, an administrator, a mercier, or a mercenary, you know, <laughs> everyone, everyone gets this one in verse 7, which is the manifestation of the Spirit, which is given to every man now to profit with all. Okay, so we are... To summarize this far, he says, oh, out of time. Sorry, guys. Next week. No. <laughs> he, says, he says, first of all, we're to discover our gifts. Second, we're to seek out our administration. God, what ministry do you want me in? I know what my gift is. Am I to be involved in this church ministry? Am I to be involved in CareNet? ministry? Am I to be involved in born-again disciples ministry? Am I to be involved in, you know, Voice of the Martyrs or Potter's Feet? Look, Lord, what's the ministry that you want me in, in my gifting? So I know my gift. I find my ministry. Then I'm called to work out my operation. Lord, how do I fit? How does my gift work? How do I teach? How do I serve? How do I? And, and we work out the operation that God has given to us. How did you make me, Lord? 
And, you know, for me, just personally, that's been a huge challenge as a teacher to just accept what I am. Because so often, you know, as a teacher, I'm into teaching. I listen to a lot of teachings. And sometimes I listen to teachings and I go, I wish I was more like that teacher. But God's not going to bless that in me because that's not me. And so we have to work out the operation. We're called to work out our operation. And then finally, fourthly, we're to wait for or wait on the manifestation. What's the manifestation? To manifest means to unveil. It means to reveal something that was hidden. And so the manifestation of the Spirit, listen, is where God shows up. God shows up in the ministry that I am operating in while using my gift. God shows up and uses me in a supernatural way. That's the manifestation of the Spirit, and that's the important thing. If I don't have that, then I have nothing. I could be gifted. I could be involved. I can operate. But if God doesn't show up, it's useless. It's good for nothing. And the good news is, when we discover our gift, get involved in a ministry, work out our operation, and do it, God will show up. That's the promise that's being given here. Because he says that the manifestation is given by the Spirit to every man to profit with all, meaning to profit everyone else. So if I do those things, God's going to show up in my ministry. Well, how does he show up in my ministry? Verse 8. He says, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy or a word of prophecy, saying something prophetic or supernatural that has to be from God. To another, discerning of spirits. That means seeing the invisible motives and reasons and, and happenings behind a particular thing. To another, diverse kinds of tongues, a, a prayer language, or the ability to interpret another language if necessary for a reason. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But all these, these manifestations, works that one and self-same spirit dividing again here it is to every man severally meaning liberally or with liberality as he wills now here's what this is saying he's saying it doesn't matter what your gift is it doesn't matter what your ministry is or what ministry you're in it doesn't matter how your gift operates you are entitled to and should be in expectation of these things happening in your lives on a day-by-day -day basis, constantly, liberally. God's going to show up in your life as you use these things. And you need these things in order to be fruitful and productive in the place that God has called you. A word of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing what to do, right? It's just simple knowing where to take the next step. That's wisdom. And whether you're a teacher 
or a giver, you need God's supernatural wisdom to know how to do it. Because otherwise, you're just guessing, and you're not going to be fruitful and productive. So you need God to give you wisdom to know what to do. We pray for wisdom all the time. I remember my pastor one time was on the mission field, and he said that, uh, not Bobby, it was my first pastor, and um, he was on the mission. You, you knew that as soon as I said mission field, right? That, that wasn't talking about. <laughs> but he was on the mission field, and, and he said that, that they were part of a crusade, uh, and they had done music and evangelism, and many people had come to Christ. And one of the men that came to Christ was a doctor, and he was from a third-world country, or living in a third-world country. Um, and he was from there, and he said, he came and he confessed, and he said, I've given my life to Christ tonight. And he said, as soon as, I, uh, as soon as I accepted Christ, I became convicted about the fact that I have seven wives. He says, I have a wife in every city that I travel to. And he said, and I just have this horrible conviction that this is wrong. And that I, he, so he looked, at, he looked at my pastor and he said, which one do I keep? and he said that the lord gave him a word of wisdom he he asked him the question he said are any of them saved and he said yeah one that's the one but it was a word of wisdom it was just something that god gave him in that moment a word of knowledge a word of knowledge just simply means that the spirit of god gives you knowledge of a situation or a knowledge about something that there's no way that you could have that knowledge unless God the Holy Spirit gave it to you in some supernatural way. And it happens from time to time. You're talking to someone and, and they, they say something and God just shows you something. You know. You just know that something is a particular thing and that there's a particular dynamic involved in a certain thing. You know, and, and it's a, just a word of knowledge, and God gives that to you. You're watching um, uh, someone uh, giving a missionary plea, and you have the gift of giving. And God just gives it to you that this is crooked. It's a crooked operation. There's something in it that he shows you. You know, it's a word of knowledge. And you can go through. We're not going to, you know, belabor each of what these manifestations are. But listen, every one of them is necessary and every one of them is available. And we're to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit to show up in our ministries as we use our gifts so that there's a supernatural element in the things that we're doing, and thus it makes a difference. Because take the supernatural out, and you've taken the power out. There's nothing to it. You're just simply doing something. You're filling time. You've, you've got a, a sheet, a paper, that says that you did it. That's it. But you've done no good. If you're a teacher and God the Holy Spirit doesn't use the teaching and anoint it in the hearts of those that hear and cause their path to walk a little bit straighter, then you've imparted information, but that's as far as it's gone. It's done nothing eternal. And thus we need the Holy Spirit to gift us and then empower those gifts by showing up as we use them. And if we're not doing that, then part of us is not going to be in the will of God for our life because part of the will of God for our life is what he wants to do with us while we're here on earth. He did not leave us on earth after he saved us so that we could serve a prison sentence. Fulfilling our three score and ten and then dying a natural death and then we get to go to heaven and say that we did it. He left us here because he has something for us to do. And that something for us is a privilege and an opportunity 
for us to give back to him according as he has given to us. To be involved in something that makes a difference in other people's lives and that glorifies him and builds his kingdom. That's a privilege that you and I have. And there's not one person that's left out from it. All of us have been gifted by God. And a part of our remaining in the will of God in every part of our life is to be engaged in the service according to what he's gifted and given us to do. Because if we're not, then it's too easy to drift. It's the complications in our lives that keep us engaged in things, right? I mean, how many of us would walk away from it all if it weren't for the complications that keep us bound in the circumstances that we're in, right? I mean, every one of us from time to time, how cool would it be to just cash in and buy an island for a thousand bucks? <laughs> You're laughing because you thought that, you know, on the way here probably today, you know? <laughs> but then we think, okay, well, I've got kids and what would they do? And, you know, and I've got a reputation and I do have goals and I've put 20 years into working towards this thing and I'm not going to just throw it away now and, you know, got 14 years into this marriage, you know, <laughs> kind of a thing. I'm just, you know, those things that we kind of look at as the prison bars or the chains, those things keep us in safety. And our ministry is to be one of those things that keeps us from becoming unsavory salt. Checking out in my mind to the things of God. Yeah, I still call myself a Christian. I still go to church, but God disappointed me a long time ago, and I'll be darned if I'm going to serve him. We would never say that with our mouth, but we say it with our actions and our attitudes so often. Every one of us has been gifted by God. No one can claim exemption. Every one of us has a combination of gifts that makes up that calling. There is a ministry open for all of us to be serving, and there are multitudes of ministries for God to move us around through and in. There is an operation of your gift that only you can perform and fulfill. No one else can, because God has made you uniquely you. It's your own ministerial thumbprint that you can leave upon his kingdom. And God the Holy Spirit wants to manifest himself in your ministry to benefit others, to be a blessing to the body of Christ, and to glorify the kingdom of God. And it's important. And here's another thought. And if you go on and read the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll, as we continue through Romans 12, picking up there next week, is that other people in the body of Christ are dependent upon your faithful fulfilling of the thing that God has given you to do. Interesting, as you get older, you learn a little bit more about the human body, more out of necessity than desire. <laughs> but what you learn is how intricately related all of the various organs and parts of the body are, right? And what you realize is that if one part isn't working right, then other parts aren't going to work right. And sometimes that can become very complex and confusing. It can cause problems that are hard to diagnose, right? How many people are diagnosed with low thyroid function, both male and female? Many. There are lots. And, and, and most people just go and they treat the thyroid. But do you realize that there's like 50 things that cause that? There's a reason why your thyroid's not working the way it's supposed to work. Could be your adrenals. Could be your gut. 
could be a, a nutrition deficiency in a particular area, a lack of iron or something else. My point in saying that is not, you know, health class. My point is to say, what part are you to be supplying in the body of Christ and what other organ is suffering because you're not serving? Do you know what I am in the body of Christ? I'm gut flora. <laughs> because I break things down and insert them into the bloodstream. That's what I do. <laughs> it's not a very glorious and glamorous thing. You know, oftentimes it stinks. <laughs> you know, you have to deal with a lot of bacteria and all. But if I don't do that, then someone else isn't receiving what they need in order to perform and do what they're supposed to be doing. And this morning, as you said here, you carry an incredible responsibility. Because you are called to and equipped to supply something for the body of Christ in 2018 that only you can produce and provide. And if you don't, then what does that mean for the rest of the body? Where is it weaker? It is. And thus it's important for every one of us. In this pursuit of the will of God, no matter what the circumstances, that we hang in there, that we be engaged, that we be involved, that we be healthy spiritually, that we might be used, that he might be glorified, and that we might pass the baton to the generation that comes, leaving the body of Christ bigger, stronger, healthier than how we ourselves received it. Amen?